This is Purple Radio On Demand. Hello and welcome to the World Now podcast, the programme that dissects some of the most important and interesting political issues in the world. In this premiere programme, Latin America is the core focus. We are currently seeing key events unfold that could shape the region indefinitely for years to come, such as Chile's pro-democracy plebiscite, the revival of democracy in Bolivia. But equally, chaos in Peru and Venezuela paints an increasingly multifaceted picture. So to help talk about the state of democracy in Latin America, and to better understand its cultural nuances, I spoke to Mike Gatehouse of the Latin American Bureau, a writer and researcher who is committed to social justice in Latin America. I asked Mike about a wealth of different issues in the hope of getting a more complex and developed understanding of politics in Latin America. Mike, it's nice to meet you. Um, we live in truly unprecedented moments at the moment. Um, but I think to start, particularly when it comes to Latin American politics, I wanted to just go down back to Chile in the 1970s, because I know you did live during an exceptional time of change uh, in Chile, particularly when uh, the coup in 1973 occurred, uh, when Pinochet uh, seized power from a democratically elected government. So I just wanted to know, what was it like on the ground? And how do you think that experience reflected Latin America at the time? It was an extraordinary time. Um, I'd been previously studying in the US uh, in a department of rural sociology with a lot of Latin Americans from different countries. So this was 1970-71. And they all said, if you want to know what's going on, what's really interesting, what's a completely new development, you must go to Chile. So in the spring of 1972, I went to Chile. And so I lived there for the year and a half before the military coup, which was in September 73. And it was, a, in many ways, an intoxicating time. It was the most interesting, exciting, intense experience, perhaps, of my life. Um, and the what was being played out, in essence, was whether it was possible to achieve genuinely revolutionary change, revolutionary, uh, if you like, not in the left jargon sense, but revolutionary in the scale of changes being affected. The, the tilting of the balance of power away from traditional and wealthy elites towards the majorities of the population, whether it was possible to do that uh, without uh, armed action on the streets, without a violent revolution. And that was certainly how it was understood worldwide at the time. It was why, for instance, even in Britain, uh, there was intense interest from pretty much everyone left of centre in Britain, and certainly from the Labour Party and the left of the Labour Party. People forget that Jeremy Corbyn first went to Chile actually before IND took government in about 1969 and followed events thereafter. Um, numerous sort of Labour people at the time, Judith Hart, uh, all the Tribune Group MPs, uh, all followed it closely, but so did others. In Chile itself, it was a time when it was impossible to speak to people without talking politics. Everyone talked politics, irrespective of where their sympathies lay. And you could say that's healthy or unhealthy, I don't know, but it was unique. I'd never experienced the like. It was clear from roughly October 1972 
that things were getting difficult, essentially for two reasons. One was the economy and the degree of opposition, overt or more or less covert, that Chile was experiencing from those foreign powers and corporations whose interests have been affected by these changes. So the big copper companies whose mines have been nationalized, uh, the Chilean telephone company, uh, which was owned by um, ITT, the American Consortium, and of course, the US government. Um, if you remember rightly, and I assume it's a real quote, not apocryphal, but Henry Kissinger was quoted at the time as saying, I don't see why we should stand by and see a country go communist because of the stupidity of its own people, which uh, was a memorable quote. Uh, so through from October 72, when the owners of lorry transport across the country staged in effect a lockdown uh, and barricaded highways, uh, it became more and more difficult for proper unity to govern and the economy was difficult and inflation started rising rather in the same way it did in Venezuela four or five years ago and since. Um, and then in March, April 1973, there were elections and uh, they were congressional elections, not the whole of Congress, but a significant number of deputies and senators were up for election. And contrary to the expectation of the right and of the Christian Democrats, who were the center, if you like, but increasingly right-leaning center, Popular Unity actually did better in those elections than expected, uh, and in some ways better than it had done in 1970. So that crystallized a clear moment when uh, the right, in Chile at least, realized or reckoned or reached the conclusion that it could not achieve its ends by peaceful means. And so from then on, acts of violence and sabotage fomented by the right uh, began to increase. I worked for the uh, Forestry Institute, a joint uh, sort of quasi-governmental agency with uh, Chilean government funding, but a lot of funding from uh, foreign governments, Finland, uh, Scandinavia, and UN agencies. So quite a big institute, very important in Chile. Forestry was a major industry and a growing one. And we had numerous vehicles, mostly Land Rovers or Land Rover equivalents, which went out on the roads to travel to the forests and forest farms. And from about July onwards, 1972, we had to pull them off the road because they would be ambushed and attacked by right-wing, right-leaning farmers and their employees. And uh, our drivers were threatened, uh, sometimes roughed up, and the vehicles uh, damaged or destroyed. That was just a small sample. There were power cuts, again, coordinated and staged by right-wing groups. There was an attempted coup on the 29th of June, 1972, a sort of rather ridiculous affair when Patria Libertad, which was the sort of extreme right-wing uh, group in Chile, uh, and some of their followers in the army 
in one particular tank regiment attempted to storm the presidential palace and it failed it was failed within a few hours uh, the commander of the army remained loyal to the government uh, and the conspirators surrendered but even then it was clear that that was kind of a dry run that somebody jumped the gun but more serious things were in the offing so by the beginning of september the coup if you remember september the 11th by the first days of september it was clear to many of us that what was in the offing was in effect a civil war or a major much more serious coup attempt but what i think almost nobody on the left then expected was that the coup would be successful and when it came on september 11th it was dramatically successful in a very short space of time so the first troop movements mainly from naval units in Valparaiso, the main port, which is about two, three hours drive from Santiago. They effectively mutinied, rose up, whatever, stopped obeying orders. And then in the early hours of the morning in Santiago, troops started moving towards the center of the city and converged on the presidential palace, which they started shelling. And then later in the day, the air force was ordered to use its British Hawker Hunter jets to strafe the presidential palace with rockets. By three or so in the afternoon, it was more or less over. Um, police and uh, youth security units defending Allende in the palace had surrendered. Allende himself was dead. Uh, whether or not he committed suicide or was killed by the soldiers is uncertain. I, on the whole, evidence seems to point to the fact that he committed suicide, but either way, uh, it, was, it was over. And although many of us expected that there would be loyal army units somewhere or other, or indeed that the parties of popular unity would be able to convert, concert some kind of civil uprising, it didn't occur. And the level of military force deployed was quite extraordinary. Soldiers were everywhere. Everybody was searched, revised. They declared a three-day curfew from the afternoon of September the 11th until late on the 13th, I think. Uh, people couldn't go out in the streets. Those who did go out were shot. Uh, massive arrests took place. I was arrested on, about 10 days later and taken to the National Stadium, which was Chile's equivalent of Wembley Stadium, the main football and sports stadium in the centre of Santiago, or close to the centre. And when I arrived there, the area where they, uh, the police buses were disgorging the prisoners who had to be taken into the stadium was full of people in white coats. And these were doctors and nurses from one of the main hospitals in Santiago who'd been arrested on the basis of lists supplied by the right-wing leadership of the doctors' union as subversives who should be arrested. So these were doctors and nurses on duty in a hospital in the centre of the capital city, being rounded up en masse, called out by name, and sent off to this make-do make provisional concentration camp. So <laughs> that's, that gives you a little picture uh, yeah. of what it was like. So if we fast forward now to the 21st century, um, 
we've just seen perhaps a historic moment in Chile where they've the Chilean people voted in a national plebiscite, which uh, demands of its government that they investigate uh, potential um, new looks into a new constitution. Um, so how do you think Chile has recovered from the initial um, Pinochet coup d'etat in the 1970s? And how painful has that transition been uh, into its current form now to demand such fast change, do you think? I think you need to sort of compare it because military coups tend to get regarded as something that happens on a particular date, a particular day, and then it's done and dusted. But in Chile, what the coup ushered in was a prolonged period of dictatorship that lasted from September 1973 until the end of 1989. So the Pinochet regime, dictatorship, whatever you want to call it, the government, lasted much longer than anyone at the time expected. And I think it had a similar effect in some ways to what you need to compare it to is the Franco regime in Spain, because the Franco regime in Spain created an entire generation of not exactly darkness, but of shut-inness, where the country was relatively divorced from the rest of Europe and so on. In Chile, it wasn't shut off to the same extent because there were military regimes in other countries, but Chile's was one of the longest lasting. Secondly, the transformations it ushered in were profound, much more than just shooting a few people, changing a few ministers and heads of institutions. Everything was changed, right down to the mayors of small towns were changed in the days and months from September 1973. And the economy was fundamentally altered. The constitution about which the plebiscite has just been held this year in Chile was the constitution written in 1980-81 by a very extreme right-wing Catholic intellectual called Jaime Guzman, who was commissioned by Pinochet with presumably others to come up with this new constitution. That had remained in effect. And although it had been somewhat revised after the end of the dictatorship, the core of the constitution remained in effect. And one of the explanations for the success of the plebiscite is that Chile was saddled with this, not just a constitution, but a whole model of how an economy should work, who the important and relevant actors were, where power should lie, that were enshrined in that Pinochet era constitution. And that's why it needed to be changed. People have said they're puzzled. Why after so long? Why? Um, when Chile in many respects is one of the wealthier countries of Latin America with one of the highest standards of living. Why was there such overwhelming support both for the protests that started or in a sense resumed in September, October last year and that carried through until the right wing government of Sebastián Piñera uh, agreed to hold the plebiscite that's just been held. And the plebiscite, I think, to the profound surprise of the right wing in Chile, delivered a massive majority. 80% of people said the constitution needs to be 
junked and fundamentally rewritten. That's a huge majority. It deeply surprised the right in Chile, who probably knew they might lose, but didn't expect to lose by anything like that proportion. So I think it is a, um, a very clear symbol of just how profoundly the Pinochet era changed Chile and locked it into a particular model. Um, and I think the, the economics of it is really important because although standards of living in Chile rose, poverty declined, inequality rose throughout the period of the dictatorship and subsequently carried on rising. Um, I listened earlier today to a Chilean academic talking precisely about this point. And he said he looked at a map of the plebiscite results in Santiago and all of the poor and middle-class areas of Santiago voted overwhelmingly for the new constitution, a new constitution to be written. Two or I think three communas in Santiago voted against and those were the wealthiest three so if you like Mayfair and uh, uh, Richmond and I don't know where yeah. else, Kingston on Thames or somewhere, voting uh, against. But it was a really clear indicator of the depths of the divide and the depths of inequality. Uh, in regards to inequality, do you think this is a, a more general problem with um, democracy in Latin America? The sheer inequalities that perpetuated many of their, their societies? Yes. I think so, definitely. Um, and it's inequality is, if you like, it's a, it's a silent issue. It's seldom in political campaigns a major slogan or a major thing that people think about. But if you look at the motives for particular political sectors uh, and the degree of oomph they're able to generate behind their campaigns, it seems to me inequality is commonly uh, a major factor. Um, in Brazil, for instance, uh, one of, for years, one of the most unequal countries in Latin America, with a government, Bolsonaro government, uh, which profoundly rejects radical change and is busy reversing many of the more progressive actions of previous governments, notably the governments of Lula and Dilma of the PT, Workers' Party, but also changes going back much further than that. So inequality is certainly a really hot issue in Brazil, although it's not usually named. So in terms of inequality, do you think that was a massive impetus for, uh, I guess, the, the return of democracy uh, in, in countries uh, such as Bolivia recently, which has yeah. seen big changes uh, in government, big changes in the way in which the, pop the population is speaking about these issues? Bolivia is very interesting and in some ways hard to understand. But what is definitely the case is whatever his other failings or faults, uh, Evo Morales' governments uh, radically transformed Bolivia and made it a much more equal place. When Morales was removed, pushed, forced to resign, however you like to say it, but in what I'm fairly clear was a peaceful coup um, a year ago, um, the sectors that came back into power, so the interim president, Janine Agnes, 
and the forces backing her, particularly the wealthy in Cochabamba, um, in the east of the country, uh, where some of the Bolivian oil and gas wealth is. They clearly thought they could turn, wind the clock back uh, and install a, a government of the old style. And so the elections this year, which of which the results were truly astonishing. Bear in mind that the main motive given and all the publicity around getting rid of Morales was that he had um, uh, stood for a, an additional term against the will of a plebiscite which said he shouldn't do so uh, and that allegedly manipulated the vote, allegedly there would be massive fraud. So only a year ago, elections were characterized as massively fraudulent. The people rejected them, apparently, or acquiesced in their rejection. Morales was pushed out, not just Morales, but all the mass leaders, uh, ministers were pushed out of office. Some of them were prosecuted or indicted, uh, others disqualified from standing again. And yet, in less than 12 months, um, the MAS party, Morales's party, is able to stand again in elections uh, and to win massively and to win actually by a larger majority than in the allegedly fraudulent elections the previous year. That's an astonishing result and a signal defeat for uh, not just Agnes, but for the traditional right in Bolivia. So do you think this election result can be, I guess, a symbol for mass change across the continent? Because I know recently we've seen uh, the, Peru the, the Parisian president uh, kind of be voted out of power, if you will, yeah. or yeah, by, by its parliament. Do you think uh, cases like Bolivia are merely just outliers or do you think it's a, a, a symbolic change of what's to come over the next few months? I think it's a symbolic change of importance, but not necessarily going to be decisive in other countries. I think it's, it's important, two, two particular, well, three results are very important recently. One is the re-election of, or the, the, the return to power um, of the Peronistas in Argentina. Secondly, the plebiscite in Chile, and thirdly, the election result in Bolivia. Bear in mind that in the period from roughly 2004 onwards, um, analysts referred to the pink tide in Latin America, governments that were not necessarily revolutionary left, but left-leaning. So the Bachelet government in Chile, uh, the um, Peronista government in Argentina, um, Uruguay, uh, the PT in Brazil, etc., uh, etc. Et so it all seemed, you know, good for the left, plus, of course, um, Chavez in Bolivia. And then all of that seemed to turn sour. So um, you've got uh, the impeachment of Gilma, the election of Bolsonaro, um, the right-wing governments coming into power at different times in Argentina and Chile, etc. And everyone said, oh, the pink tide's finished. Those left-leaning governments with their um, economic policies based on extracting wealth uh, through mining and oil exploration and other things and financing social programs 
progressive reforms to health and education. That doesn't work. It's all finished. Anyway, they're all corrupt. They're all out. And yet, you know, barely a couple of years later, uh, we see the tide not decisively turning, but beginning to ebb back importantly in certain places. So if you think of a shoreline with the tide coming in in different ways, different little inlets and so on, Bolivia, Chile, Argentina are important inlets. They don't make for an entire new wave, but they're certainly very important. And of course, they will give courage and strength to progressive forces in the other countries. So how do you think, because of, of the impacts of COVID, how, how do you think that um, Latin America as a whole, as you said, you know, different tides, there's different versions of regimes across the whole continent, but how do you feel um, uh, COVID will impact not just inequality in Latin America, but also their susceptibility to democracy? It's, it's hard to tell, and in many ways, it's very early days to tell. What is odd or difficult to understand in Latin America is the differing rates of COVID. I mean, the same is true worldwide or even within Europe. It's hard to understand why, say, France and Spain should be doing so badly in comparison with Germany. Um, in Latin America, it's much more complex. Uh, but you get countries, for instance, Peru, locked down relatively early and relatively stringently, and yet had some of the worst uh, rates and death rates quite quickly across the summer. Um, Chile also, with a right-wing government, but nevertheless a highly sophisticated, rel relatively technologically advanced country, had very bad rates. Um, so there have been different incidences of COVID in different countries, and it's difficult to clearly relate the high instance in some countries to the policies of the governments, except signally with Brazil, where you had a president who out-trumped Trump, who denied uh, COVID, who said it's a glucosinia, a mild case of flu, and yet Brazil has one of the worst uh, total instances of infection and death rates in the world. And it's a disaster that is still galloping ahead. Um, the longer term effect, well, the medium and longer term effects of COVID are not only on the death rate uh, and how that is perceived by people, but also on the economy. In terms of how the death rate is perceived, you might think that there would by now have been instances of mass uprising in Brazil against the manifestly loony policies of their president. That hasn't happened at least not as far as I'm aware. In fact, there don't seem to have been very significant rebellions. In terms of the economic effect, and again, this differs from country to country, but two things are important. One is the degree to which governments by their drastic economic policies have been able to keep businesses going, which otherwise would have gone bankrupt, to keep people in employment by direct or indirect subsidy. That's important, not just for now, for the last few months and now, but obviously for the coming period, perhaps months or even a year or two, depending on the duration of the pandemic. But the longer term effect is much more radical, which is the number of jobs that will be lost permanently 
and the number of people in poor and marginal occupations who will be rendered penniless and possibly starving. And that, I think, is it's too early yet to know. I mean, we, Lab published, Lab Latin America Bureau, where I'm an editor, Lab publish, has published in recent times a whole string of articles. And I'd urge people to go and look on our website, lab.org.uk, and look at the articles we've published under the general label COVID-19. So we've had stories from Buenos Aires of what happened to street sellers and people in marginal occupations who are forced to go out to work because they have no choice if they want to eat. Uh, stories from the province of Jujuy in Argentina where quite a right-wing uh, provincial governor imposed very strict lockdowns which were relatively successful in keeping infection at bay, at least in the early stages of the pandemic, but where people began to suspect that it was part of a right-wing agenda to impose a much more authoritarian style of state government. Um, stories from the Atacama region of Chile, which is a region of some indigenous people, poor rural communities, very sparse communities in a desert or semi-desert area and big mining companies and where the there's been a tension between the mining companies that wanted to carry on production and local communities saying no this has got to stop because mines imply transport they imply people coming into the region from outside who will carry infection and so people from those communities blockaded the highways they were then attacked or oppressed by the police there've been confrontations and so on uh, similarly, in Brazil, in some of the um, indigenous communities in the Amazon have attempted to blockade themselves. There have been big protests against particularly the mining companies for the same reasons that mines commonly, commonly imply engineers, transport workers, others coming in from outside, carrying infection or potentially carrying infection and living in dormitories or encampments where infection spreads rapidly. So all of that is going on. The longer term effects, I think it's very hard to predict. Um, but I would say that it seems intrinsically probable that inequality will rise right across Latin America. And that to the extent that it does rise, it will become a motor for major social and political protest and potentially political change. People have speculated for a long time. I don't know if you know the book, The Shock Doctrine by Naomi Klein, which gives a very, very powerful analysis of how major political, economic and natural disaster shocks, uh, ranging from the coup in Chile to the tsunami in Sri Lanka and South, South, Southern Asia, uh, the hurricane in Louisiana, in the United States. These kinds of major cat cataclysmic or catastrophic change have been exploited by uh, big corporate wealth and power to seize control of things that previously were provided by local governments or by uh, social schemes of one kind and another, and to privatize them, to drive a much more radical neoliberal agenda. 
And indeed, that's Naomi Klein's interpretation of the coup in Chile and its true importance. But you can almost see that happening now. Just look at what's happening to the National Health Service in Britain, where despite everyone going out and saying NHS heroes and clapping and so on, if you actually look at what's happening to government contracting of health-related services uh, depend, caused by or necessitated by the COVID pandemic, who's it going to? It's going to Deloitte, it's going to Serco, it's going to these big companies, uh, while the NHS is relatively deprived and starved of funding. And the same things will be happening right across Latin America. I think myself, I mean, this is a, a declaration of faith, perhaps not very evidence-based, but I'm confident that this power grab will not ultimately be successful. And I think uh, the dying days of the Trump regime in the United States are something of an evidence of that. So just, I think just to cap it off, I think um, often issues about Latin America, uh, particularly in the Western world, aren't really sort of tackled definitively or aren't discussed in an open and honest way. So I think my last question would be, what do you think and how do you think we should discuss Latin American politics, Latin American socioeconomic issues here? Because there is often a tendency to, I guess, speak of it in a uh, quite uh, sort of atomized way. How, how, how should we speak about these, uh, these issues? It's hard to say, but I mean, what I would urge um, students of politics, of sociology, uh, and of many other disciplines across Britain and across the West, to do is to look at Latin America, because it is so interesting and so varied, but also because I, I feel that it is a source of really creative and interesting thought about what kinds of new societies we can encourage and create. And that's been true, I mean, there's been a very strong green movement in Chile for the last five, 10 years, developing new ideas about a country, the, the economy of a country that has been so based on mineral exploitation uh, and where the effects of climate change are very evident in glacier loss, uh, decreased rainfall, indirect results of what's happening in the Amazon, among other things. I think Latin America is a fascinating place that we in Europe would do very well to study and visit and be curious about. So I urge your listeners to do that. So thank you. We've come to the end of the first episode of the World Now podcast. But before I leave you, I must make a few corrections regarding some factual errors that took place during the live recording uh, with Mike Gatehouse. And that is the first one being the Chile coup uh, took place in 1973 rather than 1972. Chavez was of Venezuela and not of Bolivia, of course. And finally, the city that backed Añez was Santa Cruz rather than Cochabamba. Thank you all for listening, and please tune in again later for another fantastic episode. Purple Radio Podcasts. Thanks for downloading this Purple Radio Podcast. For more great content and to listen live, head to purpleradio.co.uk.